You're listening to the audio version of the Frontline documentary Amazon Empire, The Rise and Reign of Jeff Bezos. This special presentation is being offered in four episodes. Here is episode one. What is your claim to fame? (laughs) I'm the founder of Amazon.com. From the award-winning producers of The Facebook Dilemma. Richest guy in the world. Frontline investigates Amazon. Is Amazon taking over the world a good thing? Questioning those who run the company. What would you say to someone who feels as though humans are increasingly being treated like robots? That's not the experience that I had in setting it up. And those no longer there. Most people would assume there is a pretty high safety standard on Amazon. And that assumption would be incorrect. The tools are not what I call battle-tested. I'm asking if Amazon is a monopoly. The question for the democracy is, are we okay with one company essentially winning capitalism? How do you and Jeff think about the call to break you guys up. Simply because the company's been successful doesn't mean it's somehow too big. Now on Frontline. Domination was very much the idea. Amazon Empire. Frontline is made possible by contributions to your PBS station from viewers like you. Thank you. And by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Major support is provided by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. And by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide. Additional support is provided by the Abrams Foundation, committed to excellence in journalism. The Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues. The John and Helen Glessner Family Trust, supporting trustworthy journalism that informs and inspires. The Heising Simons Foundation, unlocking knowledge, opportunity, and possibilities and by the Frontline Journalism Fund, with major support from John and Joanne Hagler and additional support from Laura DeBonis and Scott Nathan. Jeff Bezos has already conquered the retail frontier. Now he's got a plan to colonize the planet. Bezos is laying out his plans for colonizing space. Bezos is known for going big, and now he's literally shooting for the moon. In May of 2019, Jeff Bezos, the richest person on the planet, unveiled his latest invention. This is Blue Moon. It's time to go back to the moon, this time to stay. Jeff Bezos' longtime friend, Joshua Weinstein. Jeff has said over and over again that the most important work he's doing is work in space. What he's built with Amazon is really important and really interesting, and it's, it's revolutionized commerce but it's only revolutionized commerce. Bezos's plan is to chart a new course for the future of humanity. Manufactured worlds rotated to create artificial gravity with centrifugal force. These are very large structures, miles on end, and they hold a million people or more each. It's an idea he's had since he was a teenager. This is me in high school, and I want to highlight this quote, the Earth is finite, If the world economy and population is to keep expanding, space is the only way to go. I still believe that. Washington Post reporter Christian Davenport. The way Jeff Bezos sees it is that consumerism 
is an example of how today's society lives better than our parents did and our grandparents. And he wants you know, future generations to continue to have an increasingly better lifestyle. These are beautiful. People are going to want to live here. Bezos unveiled his extraterrestrial plans at a time of growing concern about the empire he's built here on Earth. Amazon is the great disruptor, from books to retail to grocery stores. For more than 25 years, Jeff Bezos has been disrupting and transforming almost every aspect of our modern lives. Futurist Amy Webb. Once you start connecting the dots, you see that Amazon is building all of the invisible infrastructure for our futures. Amazon announced a healthcare partnership. Amazon is helping the CIA build a secure cloud. How much of the internet do you run? It's a good question. Um, it's a lot, though. But in recent years, Amazon and Bezos have come under scrutiny for their aggressive tactics and expanding power. Author and journalist Franklin Foer. Everything that is admirable about Amazon is also something that we should fear about it. For the past year, we've been investigating how Jeff Bezos built his empire and at what cost. And so think about this. Big things start small. Jeff Bezos's empire has its roots not in Silicon Valley, but on Wall Street. That's where the young Princeton graduate went to work in the early 1990s at a secretive hedge fund called D.E. Shaw. Former Amazon chief scientist Andreas Weigand. David Shaw was the one who revolutionized Wall Street by introducing data. And I think Jeff really embraced that, that idea that, hey, if you have data, ultimately you win. Author of The Everything Store, Brad Stone. One of the things that David Shaw asked Jeff Bezos to do was to go and investigate new businesses, and in particular, this new thing in the early 90s called the World Wide Web. We all know that a communications revolution is underway in this country. What is the internet? It's sort of the mother of all networks. It's uh, information highways. It's kind of like your remote control to the world. Bezos was quick to see the untapped potential of the new digital landscape and was determined to get in on it. I came across the startling statistic that web usage was growing at 2,300% a year. So I decided I would try and find a business plan that made sense in the context of that growth. And I picked books as the first best product to sell online. Because books are incredibly unusual in one respect. And that is that there are more items in the book category than there are items in any other category by far. So when you have that many items, you literally build a store online that couldn't exist any other way. The store he was imagining didn't exist. So he decided to build it himself. Author Brad Stone. The reaction to Jeff's idea to start selling books on the internet was pretty incredulous, you know, from a lot of the people close to him. His mom tried to convince him to just do it at night or over the weekends. She didn't want to see him give up his job. Bezos' friend, Josh Weinstein. Jeff called and he told me that he and Mackenzie were quitting their jobs and they were moving to Seattle and starting a company. I said, great, well, what are you gonna do? He said, we're gonna sell books. I said, nice. 
He said, on the internet. I said, oh, Jeff, why will anybody buy anything from you? And he said, well, we're going to have more books than anybody else. One of the first names Bezos considered for his new website was Relentless.com. Correspondent James Jacoby. Why Relentless? Relentless meant we move on no matter what. He ultimately obviously decided that Relentless wasn't quite the right fit. Amazon, Earth's largest river, was. Amazon means gigantic. In terms of relentlessness, of stopping at nothing, it, that's, is that an apt description of Jeff? No. It's not that Jeff stops at nothing. It's that when Jeff sets his mind on a goal that he thinks he can achieve, he won't stop until he's proven wrong or until he achieves it. Jeff and Mackenzie had rented a house in Bellevue, and then we moved to a, a small second-floor office in the south part of Seattle. Shell Kappen was Amazon employee number one, one of nine former Amazon insiders who agreed to talk on camera. What the company is now was nowhere in my wildest imagination. Nowhere. So the fact that it could have the, the kind of position in the world that it has now I had no clue. In July 1995, Amazon.com went live. Former Amazon.com senior editor James Marcus. It was an incredible novelty. It was tiny and obscure. And it's very hard to imagine, but the entire universe that Amazon now dominates did not exist. Amazon.com, this virtual shop claims to be the world's largest bookstore. It didn't take long for Bezos's vision to prove prescient. What makes us different is vast selection, convenience. We deliver right to the desktop. If our catalog were printed on paper, it would be the size of seven New York City phone books. The company quickly outgrew the garage and soon had more than 50 employees. In 1996, James Marcus applied to be number 55. There was a very palpable excitement in the air at this place. And of course, at this point, Jeff Bezos was the first person to interview every prospective employee. So I was ushered into his office. He wanted to see how fast you were on your feet. He also always wanted to know your SAT scores. He wanted to know your SAT scores? Every time, yes. How old were you at the time? I was 36 or 37. This is the original sign that I made for Amazon.com, blue spray paint on white poster board. Jeff wasn't a figure out of folklore at that point. He was not the, the wealthiest man in the world. This is my computer, Amazon.com, up on the screen. Hello, Jeff Bezos. My he was a small, nondescript, sandy-haired man sitting at a desk with quite a large and eruptive laugh. <laughs> <laughs> But he wasn't threatening. He was a normal guy to a sort of amazing extent. Hal 9000 hat, very important. Hal and I share a birthday. We're both born on January 12th. It belied you know, an enormous Napoleonic ambition. One of the people I really like, Thomas Edison, here's a model of his 
original light bulb. He is famous for saying, one's 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. <laughs> it turns out ideas are the easy part. Execution is everything. Domination was on Jeff's mind from the beginning. One of his sort of second-in-command people said to me, you have to understand that Jeff wants to sell many more things than books. And Jeff's idea is that uh, in the near distant future, you could buy a kayak from Amazon. And, if, and after you bought the kayak, you could figure out good places to kayak and buy travel services from Amazon. So those ambitions were very clear. And this was very early on. But he was clearly thinking in those terms from the get-go. How did that ring to you at the time? A little bit exciting and a little bit nutty. Amazon.com, very good website. You should really try it. <laughs> if you signed on to work at a, a kind of futuristic bookstore and the guy who owned it was suddenly talking about selling, you know, every object in the universe, you just weren't sure how seriously to take it. <laughs> <laughs> Though his public image was often unserious. That was awesome! Inside the company, Bezos was a hard-charging manager relentlessly focused on the principle that would make Amazon one of the most trusted brands in the world. The customer always comes first. This culture of customer obsession. Obsessive focus on customer. Obsesses over our customers. Totally obsessing over the customer experience. We used to call it customer ecstasy. It means building, delivering, focusing on your customer. And we did it, you know, in the very, very early days at every stage. Jennifer Cast was there in the early days and is one of six top Amazon executives the company put forward to speak to us. Customer obsession was our North Star. Um, and so, you know, it was a place where we knew we were a part of something that was new the internet, um, there was an excitement that we were doing something that hadn't been done before. It was exhilarating. Um, we were all aligned around building for customers. James Jacoby hey with former Amazon Marketplace director, John Rossman. I've heard there was an empty chair that would often be put at meetings. Yeah, who was in the empty chair? Yeah, so that empty chair was there to remind us all to understand the customer, have empathy for the customer, understand the details of the customer experience. The customer isn't there. We have to bring forward the voice of the customer. Thank you for calling Amazon.com. And Bezos quickly learned that in this new online world, he could understand exactly how customers were behaving. All orders do need to be placed online, but I'd be happy It was made clear from the beginning that data collection was also one of Amazon's businesses. Former senior editor James Marcus. All customer behavior that flowed through the site was recorded and tracked. And that itself was a valuable commodity. Okay, have you visited our website? We could track how a customer navigated through the site. Former director of pricing and product management, Randy Miller. So we could see what you looked at. We could also see what you paused at. Um, we could see what you put in your basket but didn't order. We could see what you put in your basket and did order. So that's when we started realizing, man, this is rich. This is rich, rich, rich. And so um, we've used it for everything. What do you do with that information? That's the data that allows us to predict or try to predict what books that you would like that you haven't discovered yet. Bezos treated the site as a laboratory where he studied customer behavior along with his chief scientist, Andreas Wagand. 
I was shocked to see how predictable people are. If you take the time of the day into account, if you take maybe when they were last on the site, how long they were on the site last time, how long they're on the site today, you know what they're falling for. Former senior manager Robert Frederick. Whoever owns, collects the data, if you have access to it and rights to data, then you are king. It's all about the data, everything. One of the most fascinating kind of tools we have at our disposal is the ability to do active experiments. Um, it's, you know, it's kind of this huge laboratory. We did not think about it as exploiting. We thought about helping people make better decisions. James Marcus. I was starting to feel that that was less respectful toward the consumer, who was, after all, supposed to be our god, the, the person whose ecstasy was our very reason for being. And it was closer to getting a cow into a milking stall and extracting as many pails as possible during each visit. And that felt a little more unsavory. Uh, but that was the business of Amazon. Amazon has added 880,000 new customers. While Bezos was using these insights to bring more and more customers into Amazon. The number of customers who use the website has increased fourfold. There was one thing he hadn't done yet. The company's yeah. never made a profit. That's right. Jeff Bezos with Jay Leno. Now, why, how does it, why? How does that, why? Seems like a new math, doesn't it? it, yeah. it does. Bezos would spend years losing money, trying to beat his competition. And he convinced investors to go along with it. Former senior manager James Thompson. One of Jeff Bezos' greatest accomplishments has been his ability to get Wall Street to accept the fact that for 20-some years, Amazon wasn't going to be very profitable. And that's okay because they're building infrastructure that will create huge opportunities for them to gain scale and gain customers and gain business. He spelled it out in a letter to shareholders after the company first went public. It's all about the long term, he wrote, rather than short-term profits or Wall Street reactions. And he essentially says, we're going to forego profits in order to take market share that our strategy is to lose money, which enables us then to put other companies out of business who can't afford to lose money. That strategy wouldn't sit well with critics like Stacy Mitchell, who advocates for small businesses. In essence, at the very beginning, he's signaling to shareholders, I have a strategy to monopolize the market, and that's gonna reward you, but it's gonna be far down the road. And will you come along with me? And they said yes. Investors also recognized Bezos' essential advantage over physical stores, which had to charge their customers sales tax, unlike online businesses. Greg Leroy, executive director of Good Jobs First. So not collecting sales tax gave Amazon a big leg up over bricks and mortar retailers. And that was central to their early strategy of gaining market share as quickly as they can. Stacy Mitchell of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. What booksellers were saying to me is that this is driving my customers to Amazon. They'll come into the store, they'll browse, they find what they want, but then they'll go buy it on Amazon because they can save that sales tax. So it was a very irksome, early, big issue for the book vendors, first of all. They were kind of the canaries in the mine, so to speak, and then lots of other retailers. Amazon has added thousands of warehouse workers and three million square feet of space. Amazon's sales tax advantage would be central to its success, 
as it expanded beyond books into other products. And we have a fantastic selection of things you can look at. Electronics, and then of course toys. Yeah, thank you. Here is, we've got the friendly Pokemon. This is more than 10 times the selection that you will find in a typical physical world software store. But Bezos was still a long way from his goal of Amazon being the place where you could buy everything online. And he saw a way to achieve it. Amazon could soon become the Walmart of the internet. There were thousands of businesses eager to sell online. Bezos offered them a way to do it. Amazon is transforming itself from an online bookstore to an online mall. He transformed Amazon into a retail platform where anyone could sell their goods to his customers and invited thousands of other businesses to be a part of it. It's the easiest place for anybody, small or large, who wants to set up shop online, to sell online, because they can access our 12 million plus customers. Anybody, all comers. Former senior manager James Thompson. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of companies with literally tens of millions of products. Name brand stores started selling on Bezos's platform. And so did tens of thousands of small entrepreneurs. Everyone knew Amazon.com. James Boyce is a former seller on Amazon. The only people that knew SuperDuperHoops.com were the ones that were searching to buy a basketball hoop and saw our name on an advertisement. To us, it was really a no-brainer. We knew that we would, you know, increase our sales. First year, we did 100,000. Next year, we did a million. We did two million, four million. We were doubling every year in the early days. It was great for the companies, and even greater for Jeff Bezos. Amazon has become the most recognizable name in e-commerce. Not only would he take a cut of everything other businesses sold, he'd also keep his own store on the platform, competing against everyone else in the marketplace he owned and controlled. He owns the Main Street. He has the Main Street real estate. Not just one building on a corner, the entire Main Street. How Amazon would wield its power over the online marketplace would eventually become a question for government regulators. But early on, there were indications. The first to see them were book publishers. Former senior editor James Marcus. Amazon took over a large market share of the publishing industry very, very fast. They were very quickly in a position to demand concessions. You know, I think that was a moment where publishers started to realize oh, wait a minute, like, we, they're our partner, but they now have the beginnings of a boot on our windpipe. Inside the company, they had launched a strategy that some called the Gazelle Project, because they'd heard Bezos wanted them to pursue publishers the way a cheetah pursues a sickly gazelle. Former director of pricing and product management, Randy Miller. Yeah, well, you don't go after the strongest. It's like the cheetah. The cheetah looks for the weak, looks for the sick, looks for the small. That's what you go for. So don't start with, you know, number one publisher. Start with number seven publisher and then number six publisher. And by the time you get to number three, two, and one, the noise has gonna get, gotten back to them. They're gonna know this is coming and chances are you may be able to settle that uh, without a full on war. We were just this little mom and pop publishing company uh, publishing poetry books and translated fiction. In the early 2000s, the number of books Dennis Johnson was selling on Amazon had been rising steadily. Then one day, 
he got a phone call. Our distributor called us up to talk about our Amazon contract. And he said, I went out to dinner last night with Amazon. It was like going out to dinner with the Godfather. They want a kickback. And that's the word he used, kickback. And he said they wanted 4% more of our sales. Was that unusual? Uh, it was, in our experience, it was totally unprecedented. Yes. Randy Miller ran the European book team and says he saw nothing wrong with Amazon's tough tactics to challenge publishers on prices and profit margins. In order to bring them into line, we would uh, actually take them out of automated merchandising, take their prices up to list price. We would put references on the product page, their product page, saying, you want a cheaper, you want this book for uh, on this topic for a way cheaper price? Click here. And we'd send them to whoever we thought their worst competitor was. That was how Amazon forced other uh, vendors to 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 comply, but you know, but that, but that's that's an old Walmart trick. I mean, it wasn't like Amazon created that, uh, and it made it, it made a difference. And you know, uh, Jeff kind of got excited about it. When Dennis Johnson still refused to give in to Amazon's terms, he says the buy button on all Melville House books suddenly disappeared, making it impossible for customers to purchase them on Amazon. I mean, this is the company that referred to little publishers like me as wounded. Gazelles, I believe. Um, that's how they think. That's how he thought from the beginning. Um, and we eventually had to pay what at the time I called a bribe. And as our attitude toward Amazon was, you know, render under Caesar that which is Caesar's. Um, and, and carry on as best you can. Jeff Bezos may say that Amazon comes along and has given publishers like yourself access to a huge distribution channel for your books. Has Amazon been good for your business? Well, absolutely they have. Uh, any bookseller that sells our books is good for our business. So I'm not complaining that Amazon is selling our books. I'm just complaining of the way um, that their tactics are hurting the industry I love. In addition to granting interviews, Amazon responded to written questions. Regarding Dennis Johnson's characterizations, it told us Amazon disagrees with this account. Correspondent James Jacoby. Were you uncomfortable with that sort of ruthlessness ever? Well, no, because I was in retail. I mean, people think that's ruthless. You know, I looked at some people at Amazon, wow, that's kind of mean. And I'm like, oh, a retailer and a supplier having a disagreement? Stop the presses. It happens all the time. I mean, you, you know, look, you've got finite margin. Somebody's going to have to give. And, and a lot of times, Amazon wasn't the one giving. Kindle is a purpose-built reading device. The tension between Amazon and book publishers would ramp up even further with the unveiling of the Kindle, which helped the industry transition to the digital age, but gave Amazon more power to set prices lower. And new releases are only $9.99. Around that time, Barry Lynn, an advocate for broad antitrust enforcement, was growing increasingly concerned by what he was hearing from publishers. If the door was open, uh, the publisher would say, hey, you know, Amazon, they're just a terrific customer. They're our biggest customer. They buy the most books. They sell the most books. We love them. And you close the door and they say, Amazon is destroying our business model. They're destroying our business. They have way too much power. We must do something about that. 
Lynn wanted publishers to speak up publicly and thought federal antitrust regulators might investigate whether Amazon was a monopoly, illegally abusing its market dominance in anti-competitive ways. And they'd say, no way, I'm not gonna talk about Amazon in public. I'm not talking about them on Capitol Hill. They will take retribution against me. To which you responded? Well, that, that's why we have to do something about it. Jennifer Cast ran Amazon's books division in its formative years. We've had a difficult time in some ways getting publishers to talk to us on camera about Amazon. In part, it seems the reason is that they're afraid. How do you react to that, that publishers find it uncomfortable to talk about Amazon publicly? I don't know. I mean, I, I, uh, I haven't seen that. Yeah. Um, I haven't been in your shoes. Um, I'm sure they have. I mean, if you're saying that they, they don't talk negatively about us, I mean, I know they have a lot of good things to say mm -hmm. about us. Um, you know, I, I don't know why they wouldn't speak their minds. Um, we certainly value speaking our minds. There, there is this well-known anecdote about cheetahs and gazelles, this gazelle program. Do you know about that? I don't. We've talked to former Amazonians about it where Jeff had said we, we should basically um, try to negotiate with book publishers and try to get better terms and treat the smaller publishers as a cheetah would go after a, a wounded gazelle. I didn't hear the cheetah and gazelle example, but uh, what we were looking for was people that were willing to move away from the old model of bricks and mortar to a new model, which was, you know, a, a virtual store that um, had many different types of opportunities to present their books to customers. 